Uh, a couple announcements before we get into tonight's message. Uh, we, this Tuesday, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing the case for same-sex marriage. And um, that, that outcome could be whether or not they redefine the definition of marriage. And make no mistake, uh, I know some of you, especially those of you who are younger, not sure what this is all about. And um, this is not about gay marriage. This is about the definition of marriage. Whether or not marriage is defined by a man and a woman or by man and man, woman and woman, man and woman, and anything other combination you would want to create out of that, okay? So, I mean, we're talking, depending on the definition, it could end up computer and man, computer and woman, all these sorts of things about marriage. So we want to pray this week um, for those justices that they would fear God, that they would, uh, that they would uh, want the truth. And they'd want to uphold and honor God's definition. So I do want to encourage you this Tuesday to pray. Um, if you'd like to, to join me, I'm going to be doing some fasting and praying this week. Um, and, and I would encourage you to join in the same way. To seek God, set aside those meal times, to pray for this very important subject for our, for our nation. Um, it is so important. So uh, with that said, I want to go ahead and ask uh, um, Garrett if you would pray now. For, for this upcoming week for the Supreme Court, I'd appreciate that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that your will would be done in the minds and the hearts of the Supreme Court justices, God. And this is a nation that you have set apart in the history of man, and we pray that we would continue to be that nation, God. And the only way we can be that is by putting you first, by putting your commandments first, by putting your holy word first, God. We pray that this nation would continue to be a nation that puts you first and not the whims of the people or even a minority of justices, God. We just pray that prayers all over this nation would reach the, the hearts and minds of the Supreme Court justices, God, and that your will would be done. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And uh, again, this is not a civil rights issue. Uh, I want to make sure that we're clear on that. This is an issue about how we define marriage. And of course, as Christians, as believers, we believe that the definition of marriage comes from the Word of God. It comes from God. He's the creator of it, the author of it, and he's the, the one who defines it. So that's what we want to pray for, that uh, we want God's blessing to rest upon this nation and and uh, the more we go away from the Lord, the more we are like uh, Israel in the book of Isaiah, how they just went off to their own, they, they sought after the world's um, help versus looking to the Lord. So, so we want to continue seeking that. And then uh, on, a, on a lighter note, uh, if you haven't signed up yet for the women's tea party, or wait, party, I, I'm sorry, I messed this up. Um, there's a women's uh, uh, tea coming up. <laughs> I think it's called Party. It's a play on T. Um, but uh, that's coming up uh, next a week from Saturday. Is that correct? May 9th. Okay, May 9th. Saturday, May 9th. And uh, the, uh, they, you know, they didn't give me anything to announce it today, so I, I'm not really sure I'm going to feel my way through this. But there is a cost involved. I think it's $8 for children and something for women. Uh, $10. Okay, so you guys could be doing this announcement for me. 
There is a sign-up table in the back, so if you'd like to sign up uh, tonight, make sure you do that, and it's going to be a great event, uh, great fellowship, and my wife, Laura, is uh, going to to be speaking at it, and you may wonder why I stumble over my own wife's name, and let me explain for a minute, because I just realized I did that. So my wife's name is spelt L-A-R-A, but she doesn't like to be called Lara. She likes to be called Laura, okay, because her dad wanted to call her Laura, but her mom liked the spelling from Dr. Shivago, Laura. Okay, and so anyway, when people see her name, I say Lara because it's in print. But she's like, "Why do you always tell me introduce me as Lara? My name's Laura." I'm like, "Well, it's not spelt Laura; it's spelt Lara." So anyway, that's <laughs> so you can talk to her all about it. She's in the the sound booth right now, making faces at me, and so <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you can talk to her all about that. But she'll be speaking this year at the the tea, so uh, you'll get a chance to hear her. All right. With that said, we're in Mark, chapter ten. And um, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be at verse 32. I just want to share with you something. King Louis XIV of France, was who pre- he preferred to be called Louis the Great. And he, he had even declared himself, I am the state. Like he had decided, I am this great. I'm uh, Louis the Great, I am the state. Yet he died in 1717, and his court was the most magnificent in Europe. And his funeral was by far the most spectacular. But in the church uh, where the ceremony was performed, his body was laid in a golden coffin. Uh, To dramatize his greatness, orders had been given that the cathedral would be very dimly lit with only one special candle that was to be set above the coffin. The thousands of people in attendance waited in silence as uh, the bishop, Massilian, began to speak Slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle and said, only God is great. You know, power and greatness measured by our world is, is all over the map. Uh, men seek after power, men seek after greatness, but it is truly only going to be found in the Lord. And of course, it's going to be redefined. I recently saw a Bentley commercial about all the kings and queens of America drive Bentleys. And um, the world standard of power and the world standard of greatness is very different. In fact, it's at the exact opposite end of the spectrum to what God defines as great and powerful. And we're going to be seeing that today. So let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. Remember, we're on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus is headed towards the passion and his crucifixion. And here, here we're, we're setting out with Jesus, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Wow, not exactly the message. Jesus is going through. He's been, people have heard about Jesus of Nazareth. People are following him. Large crowds are following him. But we see since the Mount of Transfiguration, he's more inclined to take aside the disciples. And this is the third time of three very explicit predictions of what will happen 
to him in Jerusalem. Each time talking about his death. If you remember the first time Jesus predicted his death in Mark chapter 8 to the disciples, Peter rebuked him and said, Lord, no way, we're not going to let this happen. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And, and during that time, Jesus taught us that if we are going to be called a disciple or one who follows after Jesus, we must deny ourselves, get rid of ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. And the disciples still didn't totally understand this. And the second time Jesus predicted his death in Mark chapter 9, again saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. And the, the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. And in fact, it says the text told us that they were afraid to ask him about it. And it was in that time that Jesus took the child and, and said, one who receives a child in my name receives me. Basically saying that the lowest of the people are to be received. Those who, who seemingly don't have any power, these are the ones you're supposed to receive in my kingdom. And now here the third time as Jesus is on the road. Now notice in verse 32, it says Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. They were amazed. I, I wonder, the, Mark doesn't tell us what they were amazed about. Jesus was just walking ahead. And I want to say, I want to suggest to you what I think they were amazed at was the determination of Jesus setting towards Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 50 Verse, seven, verse 6 and 7 give us this prophecy. And I'll, I'll turn there real fast in my, my Bible. And I think I have it up here on the screen behind me. Um, and this is what it says. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, tonight's, in tonight's study, we're going to be seeing a lot of prophecy from the Old Testament. And, you know, there's so much prophecy that I could bring into this study tonight. And unfortunately, I just can't. We'd be here all night looking at all these different, different passages. And, and you guys would eventually fall asleep on me. But praise God, we don't have a second story window for anyone to fall out or anything like that. Reference to the book of Acts. Anyway, but... Um, Jesus say, said in the, in the prophecy in Isaiah, it says he has set his face like flint. And it, what does that mean? You and I don't really use that term very much. But like a stone, unchanging, determined, not being phased by what's coming. It's interesting because when we think about brave men, when we think about our soldiers that are uh, um, fighting for our country and for our freedoms abroad, and we think about the sacrifice that they put forth, we don't think about the fact, they don't go into battle thinking, okay, this is it, here I go, I'm going to die. No, they think I'm going to fight. And I'm going to, I, if necessary, that may be the cost, but I'm going to fight. I'm going to, to, to live, and, and, and I'm going I'm to try my hardest to live. Yet here Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He is going to die, and yet he has set his face like stone, like a flint, emotionless, headed towards the cross, unchanging ready to do the will of his Father. Incredible. And they were amazed as they followed him. See, we are going to Jerusalem. Now, again, it says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Um, I've said this before, but any time in the Bible, whether, whatever direction you're coming from, because Jerusalem is in the mountains, you're always going up to it. 
You're always heading up. And we're going to see here in a minute, as they leave Jericho, they, they're heading up to Jerusalem, and it's about a 2,500-foot elevation gain from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So they're always going up to Jerusalem, no matter which way they're coming. But he takes the 12 aside and wants to, to help them to understand what's going to happen. And again, this is a very specific prophecy about himself. He's going to be delivered over first to the chief priest and the scribes. That happens at his arrest. Remember, Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed by Judas after the, the praying while well, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's arrested by the chief priests and scribes. And they put him on trial first. And they begin to beat him. And then they turn him over to the Gentiles. That happens when they take him over to Pilate. And they say, this man's guilty of blasphemy. This man's overturned our temple. This man has got against our way of belief. He should be crucified. And there Pilate takes him. And we see that they, they've, of course, the, the, this is a little bit inverted in verse 34. But he does undergo a flogging. They mock him. They spit on him. And then, of course, he's crucified. They kill him. And finally, after three days, he will rise. Now, we know from the Easter story, from Resurrection Sunday, and the account that they weren't expecting him to actually do this. And, and you and I look at this and go, well, are the disciples clueless? I mean, really? Jesus predicts this over and over again. He tells them specifically, this will happen. And they're kind of going around going, man, he's dead. Oh, man, what are we going to do now? Peter, I'm going to go back to fishing. You know, they, they're just in unbelief when he dies. They all scatter. Yet when he raised from the, raises from the dead, they're surprised. Yet he told them over and over again. And you know what? I got to tell you, I think we can be just as clueless as the disciples. Sure, looking back in hindsight, we can say, well, Jesus predicted it. Why didn't you believe it? But let me ask you, do you believe everything God tells you? If God tells you the soul that sins will surely die, do you believe it? Do you believe that, that if you sin, you will die, that you will bring death upon yourself? Do you believe when God says that certain things are sin, that they really are indeed sin? Or do often we, we go, well, I understand it's sinful, but maybe not this, or maybe, God, you know, I, I have a, a better idea about this. So I don't, I don't really think we should be too hard on the disciples, because we are faced often with the very same crisis of faith or unbelief in our lives. And we want to train ourselves. Just like the disciples were undergoing this intense training, being with Jesus, being tested in their faith, tested in their beliefs. And, and they're, they're not getting it, but they will. They will get it as they, as they continue on with Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you struggle with unbelief, if you struggle with unfaithfulness to our Lord, continue on with Him. Don't get off the road Continue on with him. Continue being amazed by him and let him do the work in your life. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of completion. He will do what he says he'll do. So trust in him. Moving on to verse 35, the response. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we, wanna, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John. (laughs) Again, those three that went up on that Mount of Transfiguration, the three that saw Jesus in his glory are the three that are most likely to screw up. Uh, And we've been seeing this. Peter, James, and John, they're the ones who are like, okay, Lord, Hey, Lord, you know, we recognize we're going towards Jerusalem. And notice the disciples, every time Jesus has predicted his death to this point, they, 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 just, they just ignore it. They're just not willing to re- or ready to hear the truth about this. And James and John get the idea, I know what we should do. Let's secure places in the kingdom. You know, hey, you have not because you ask not, right? <laughs> Jesus. When you, when you establish yourself, when, when you set up your throne, when you've kicked Roman butt, when you've, when you've put all things together, when the victory is done, will you just let us sit at your right and left? Hey, look, we're not asking to be at the, on the throne. We're just asking to be your right hand and left hand guys. We just want the seat of authority. And by the way, this might sound a bit audacious on their part, but it's not. See, according to Jewish and rabbinic writings, these are the things that, and by the way, these writings are extra biblical. They're not from the Word of God. If they had stuck with the Word of God only, they probably would have been better off because they would have been probably more likely to recognize the suffering servant Messiah King, but they don't see it. And the rabbinic writings and these extra biblical writings basically say that Messiah, when he comes, when he establishes kingdom, he will sit those people, the people of power and the people of authority at his right and his left hand side. He'll do this. He'll establish these people. So they're vying now for, for authority. And you know what? This is something that we're used to as humans. It's interesting, and I, I, I'm sure it came with sin entering into the world, the desire for power. You know, in the Old Testament in Isaiah, that is part of what it explains as Satan's fall, is that desire to be, I will ascend on high like the Most High. I desire to have power and the honor of God. And we know that that pride led to his temptation and his fall. And we know that at the tree in the Garden of Eden, the woman saw that the fruit looked good and it was desirable and it was good for attaining knowledge. And she took and she ate some and she gave some to her husband who was there with her. That desire for power, I think, has come with sin. Not being, not being satisfied with place or not being satisfied with serving, servanthood, but 
trying to make ourselves better than others, trying to put ourselves on top. And you know what? This happens all over. It happens in our workplaces. We'll begin to maneuver ourselves or, or place ourselves in positions to, to, to undermine other people, to get to the top. It happens in our, our homes. Husbands and wives vie for power. And all it does is bring about the disunity in the home and a dysfunctional home. Amazing how God's answer to struggle is servitude. God's answer to, to our, our, our greatest problems is to become a servant, to become less than, not to, be, to vie for power. So Jesus asked him, what do you want? What do you want? Oh, God, grant us this place of authority. And Jesus told them specifically, you don't know what you're asking. You, you can't drink out of the same cup that I'm drinking. Can you be baptized with the same baptism I'm being baptized with? And of course, the psalmist talks about the waves. This idea of the baptism is being overwhelmed by a flood. Overwhelmed by the persecutions and the trials that are about to happen. And Jesus asks this question, and you know what they say? We're able. We can do this. And they have no idea what they're talking about. One thing I've learned in ministry over the years is the, the longer I've worked in ministry, the more wary I am of authority. The more authority you get, the bigger the target on you gets. <laughs> the more authority you get, the more likely you are to screw up. Because it's just the way it is. It, it, it's just, the, it, it's just when, when the buck stops at you, the more chances you have of screwing it all up. And, and I, I remember when I first started ministry, I thought, yeah, I want to be a pastor. I, I want to be like Pastor Rod and, and, and uh, be over at church. And a couple years in ministry said, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm still learning what it's like to do youth ministry. 17 years later, I've almost figured out, well, no, I haven't figured out youth ministry yet. I'm still trying to learn youth ministry. And wait, you want to move me into a different position? And I remember when they asked me to take the associate pastor position here at Calvary Chapel Old Town. Um, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll do, I'll do it. But what I was surprised about was I went into the position going, all right, Rod, here, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to help you extend your days in preaching. So I want to I basically take on some of the battles. I, I haven't been hit too hard yet. I'm not punchy. And uh, I want to take on some of the battles that you've had to fight and uh, for you and shield you a little bit and work with you and, and basically prolong your days in the pulpit and, and pastoring this church. And he's like, okay, that'd be great. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll do it. Well, then people started saying, hey, congratulations on your new position. I'm like, oh, I don't think you guys understand. This isn't a congratulations thing. And in fact, if you knew what my job title is today, this is, you know, people ask me, what do you, what do, you do? And, and technically my job title is like associate pastor or something like that. But here's what I am. I'm, um, I'm the fixer. But not the fixer like, we'll fix you like that. I'm the, hey, the toilet, the urinal's broke. Hey, we need, <laughs> we need an extension cord. Hey, we need this. Hey, we need that. Hey, what about this? Um, th that's what my job title is. Hey, we need somebody to blame. Hey, we, <laughs> we need <laughs> who screwed this up? Hey, who made a mess over here? Okay, that's that's the associate pastor. He's the one. So so I've started telling people when they ask me my job title. Oh, it's number one slave. That's my job. That's my job title. <laughs> I'm the one. I'm number one slave. That's what servitude. That's what authority in the kingdom is. And. 
the disciples had no idea what they were asking James and John. And Jesus says, well, guess what? The cup I drink, you will drink. Because you're going to follow me. James is the first martyr of the church. Or after Stephen, he's the next one martyred. Sorry, second martyr. James is martyred. And then John, we know, John lived a long time, but, but church uh, history has it, now this is extra biblical, that John was first boiled in oil, and he didn't die, so they exiled him onto the island of Patmos. We see that the disciples, the 12 disciples, many of which that we followed throughout church history, were all martyred and suffered deaths for the Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't this authority that they received wasn't a, hey, sweet, now you're going to go live on easy street. You know, you put in your time with Jesus. You, you saw the whole thing. Now it's time to retire. In fact, have you seen what biblical retirement looks like? Ha- have you seen in the New Testament what biblical retirement? No. You know why? There's not. There's no biblical retirement. It, it's interesting how in our culture the idea is, okay, I work, I go to church, save up the money, store up for retirement. Now I'm retired, get the trailer, travel the country. Man, you know, I hope you enjoy your retirement and I hope you have a long retirement. But maybe with the idea that you know that now I don't have to work, I have more time to serve the Lord. Maybe it's time to refocus what the idea of retirement is and look at a biblical standpoint of retirement and that's serve the Lord. To become the servant. That's what I want to do. If that means I'm going to be traveling, fine, I'll travel. But in your retirement plans, have you, have you sought the Lord and asked, Lord, what, what do you want for me with all this free time I've got? See, that's what Jesus was, Jesus was challenging them on is, do you really even know what you're asking for? Now notice what the ten did. The other ten, when they heard this, they became indignant at James and John. And I wonder what they were thinking. Maybe they were thinking, man, how come we didn't ask first? That's messed up. Man, I should have asked, James, John, you guys stink. How could you guys put yourselves above us? That's not fair. And so Jesus goes into this teaching. This third time with his, his prediction of his death, he goes into this teaching. Authority in the kingdom of God will be nothing like the Gentiles. Authority in the kingdom of God is not ruling over people, lording over them, not telling them what to do, where to go, not exercising authority like they do. Authority in the kingdom of God means you're going to be the servant. In fact, you're going to be the best household servant, the best slave, the doulos, the bond servant, the one who's chosen to become a slave. Not the one who's, who has no choice about it. And that's the thing. In sin, you were, you've been held captive as a slave to sin. But now you've been set free. Now you have a choice. Do I, do I choose to serve my God or will I choose to go back into sin? And we have that choice to become a slave. And if you want to be great in God's kingdom, become the slave. Become the servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to serve. You're following a master who's a slave. You're following a master who's made himself, he's submitted himself to evil men and been beaten and persecuted and and murdered on a cross. How can the, 
the servant of that servant expect anything different in this life? So think about who you're following. You're following Jesus Christ, and, and maybe you're going to reassess life's goals. Maybe you're going to reassess like, wait, okay, what is, what is our family working towards? What are we trying to achieve? Are we just trying to achieve financial security? Maybe, maybe it's time to reassess those things and say, listen, family, we are going to be the best servants of our Lord Jesus Christ possible. We're going to devote our time, our talents, this household unto the Lord because we want to honor Him first in all that we do. That's what we want to do. And, and the, I think this is the greatest challenge of this passage. If we want to be great, we've got to be a servant. Now, some of you in this room might say, well, maybe I don't want to be great. <laughs> maybe, maybe I just want to be average. Average in the God's kingdom is, is better than, than not at all in God's kingdom. So maybe just average is, is good. Well, that's the problem of the cross. That's where the cross always catches us, Right? If we're going to follow after Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Him. There is no mediocre spot with carrying a cross. The cross is always death. The cross is always laying ourselves down at that altar saying, Lord, I'm yours. What would you have me do? For some of us, God wants us to, to gives us wealth to use for His kingdom. For others, God gives us trials. For others, God gives us hardships. For others, God gives us opportunities. For others, God puts us in different places. And the point is, where, where are you at in your servitude? Every time I've dealt with heavy uh, depression with people, one of the things I found is the sickness of depression tends to put the focus on self. And everything's about self. I don't like how people are responding to me. People don't love me. People, people are hurting me. This, in, this happened to me. This is me, me, me. Isn't it amazing Jesus says, die to yourself? It turns to, Lord, Lord, Lord. I'll tell you right now, if you're struggling with depression or any type of um, mental <clears throat> mental um, problem, I want to encourage you first, change your focus. Take it off me and put it on the Lord Jesus and wait and see what He does. The Lord Jesus is our ransom. He is the one who has purchased us from the grave. Let Him change your life. Let's go on to Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, 
Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So Mark tells us as, the, as they came to Jericho, Matthew actually says as they're leaving Jericho, and, and the, the problem really lies in the fact that when, when, they were, when pilgrims were moving towards Jerusalem for Passover, they would, avoid, uh, they would avoid Samaria at all costs, so they would turn out and, and go east across the Jordan into Perea, and then come back, kind of like a big S from Gal- Galilee. That's how it would go. And they'd come into Jericho, and there were two Jerichos. There was the ancient Jericho, Jericho of the Old Testament. And then there was Jericho that Herod built, the new Jericho. And Herod's Jericho, he, he had built a new palace there, a summer, his summer palace. And, and uh, he developed that area quite a bit. So they were on the road to Jericho, or from Jericho. Both are true. As they were going towards Jerusalem. And so Matthew's Gospel said they were leaving Jericho um, and uh, Mark's gospel says as they came to Jericho, and it's just there's two Jerichos there. So both are true statements. And so as they're on this road to, to Jerusalem, leaving Jericho in Mark's gospel, um, <clears throat> uh, so Mark's, sorry, Mark's gospel says, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, with a, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And by the way, I think Mark draws special attention to this. No other gospel mentions who Bartimaeus is by name. They'll say a blind beggar, but Mark's gospel says Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And by the way, when the scriptures do this, when they point out the son of so-and-so, basically what it's saying is, here's how you can find this guy. Go ask him. That's what, essentially what Mark's saying in this gospel. And, and I, I would bet, you know, we don't read anything more in the book of Acts or there's nothing in church history about this Bartimaeus who was blind. But I would bet that Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, becomes a member of the New Testament church. And that's one of the reasons why Mark knows to say, this is who this guy is. You can talk to him. But nonetheless, he's this blind beggar sitting by the roadside crying out when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth, no, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What is, he, what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, Messiah, I recognize who you are. I recognize that you have the power. I recognize that you're the anointed one of God. Have mercy on me. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and... Uh, I'm going to have to flip over to it. Um, I'm sure it's up there already, but my notes did not transfer through the cloud tonight, so I'm a little scattered. Sorry about that. And what? 12, thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to do this all off memory. <laughs> In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, it says, uh, God is giving this, this um, promise to David, and this is called the Davidic covenant, if you want a theological term for it. It's a covenant he made with the house of David, with David, King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for, your, for up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the promise to David. Now, we know that it was Solomon who was born from David who built the house, the, the, the temple. He, that was Solomon. But there's a, a further promise here that I will establish his kingdom 
forever. Now, when we look at that, we can see that, well, yeah, um, there was after King David, we have Solomon and so on, and we went down the line of the kings. But wait a minute, kings, King David's line disappeared. And we see that Israel, is, Jerusalem, Judah is carried off into Babylon in captivity. Since the time of Babylon, there's no king over Israel. Well, you could say King Herod, but King Herod was an idiomian. Uh, he was a puppet king that the Romans put in. He wasn't even really Jewish. And so there was no King David. There was nobody from the line of David. And of course, we, we know that in the genealogies that Luke and Matthew give us, uh, we see that Jesus is directly related to David through the line of Mary, that virgin birth. But what's more important here is as we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that he is that Messiah, we see that all the other prophecies, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, out of the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, uh, I'll bring my anointed one, all these other messianic prophecies tell us that it's from Jesus, from David's line, the son of David who will be Messiah. And so as blind Bartimaeus is crying out, he, he can't see worth a darn. He probably has no idea even what he's looking to. He hears probably a crowd, I'm sure. He, he senses the crowd. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And Jesus, son of David! crying out and of course the followers are like shut up shut up they rebuke him be silent Jesus doesn't have time for you you be quiet but he cries out all the more son of David have mercy on me all the more he's crying out I'm not going to let you guys stop me the crowd is loud the crowd is always loud. The crowd always wants to get in your faith. And right now, I'll tell you right now, the crowd in our country that is against us following Jesus is very loud. It's making statements. It's interesting to see even the statements that are being made. Just reading the news reports about this upcoming decision in the Supreme Court, the, the, uh, the talk about, well, the majority of America wants marriage to be defined as open. It wants an open definition. It wants marriage can be between a, a man and a man, a woman and a woman, uh, and a man and a woman. And, and we want this de new definition of marriage. But there are those who are religious right, the religious conservatives that are trying, the small minority, the religious that are doing this. And they're trying to minimize your beliefs. You shut up. Quit talking. Quit following. Man, Blind Bartimaeus, he can't see, but he's going to cry out. He's not going to be silenced because he knows what Jesus can do for him. He knows that it is in Jesus that he can be healed. It is in his Messiah, his anointed one, that can change his life. Interesting, Jesus stops. And Jesus says, call him. And it's so amazing how, much, how the crowd turns. And that's, isn't that the case with, with the crowds always today? The crowds always go in one direction. And now, we, oh, no, now we're going this direction. Oh, we're going this way. I remember in the 80s, the ozone layer, the hairspray, Aquanet hairspray in the 80s was the killing the ozone layer. And they, 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 Aquanet sold these giant cans. And they were huge. 
And it was so women could get their bangs up here. <laughs> My sister would just make a cloud of Aquanet. I'm pretty sure she never showered. She, it was just Aquanet in the room that froze her hair. But in the 80s, the ozone, oh, the ozone is killing. Now, now it's, oh, it's, it's global warming. And the crowd's always shifting and jumping on whatever tide is popular. And even in the recent times, we've seen the crowd shift on many occasions about marriage, about abortion. Um, and, and the crowd is always shifting. It was, I, I saw a survey that was taken at Brown University, and uh, this guy was doing this survey um, just as kind of a joke. It was a man on the street sort of thing. And what he was trying to get is a petition signed for fourth trimester abortion. Or fourth, yeah, fourth trimester abortion. Now, now a full-term pregnancy is three trimesters. So the fourth trimester is the first three months of the baby's life. And, and so people would come up and say, wait, fourth trimester abortion? He's like, yeah, you know, don't you believe a woman has a right to her body? Oh, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to say no. Okay, I'm signing this. He got 100 signatures in less than, um, it was like, how many was it? I, I can't remember the exact figure, so I'm going to uh, mess up this. But he got over 100 signatures, uh, and this was during the summer session when it was less crowded, for fourth trimester abortion, saying, well, don't you think a woman should have a right to her own body? Oh, yeah, you're right. So now we're signing petitions for infanticide. What, are you crazy? The crowd is always shifting. It has no rudder. The crowd has no idea which way to go. Some Hollywood actor or actress starts talking about something. Yeah, you're right. We should totally do this. That'll make society so much better. You know, <laughs> be it from facial treatments to, to whatever other um, thing Hollywood people jump onto. And the crowd always listens. And so here they're telling the man, shut up, be quiet, be silent. And Jesus stops and calls him. And then look what the crowd does. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. Wait a minute. Weren't you just telling me to shut up? <laughs> like, shut up. Shut up. Sorry, that guy's trying to interrupt you. Jesus, keep going. Like, well, call him. Hey, guess what? Jesus wants you. They just shift. And as Jesus talks to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus is not dumb. Jesus knows exactly what this man wants. Jesus knows exactly this man's problem. He sees it. Jesus knows your problems. He knows your sin issues. He knows where you've fallen. He knows where you've gone away from him. He already knows it. The question is, are you ready to exercise faith? Are you ready to turn to him and say, Lord, these eyes, they don't work. I need you to touch them. I need you to heal me. Are you willing to say, Lord, I've sinned. I've done what you told me not to do. I need your forgiveness. Lord, I need your help in walking after you and following you. Jesus gives the man the opportunity to exercise faith in him. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And followed him on the way. You know, I wonder if the same is true for some of you tonight. Are you ready to be made well? Are you ready to exercise faith and let Jesus make you well? 
Trust me, he wants to. In fact, he came, he came for that very reason, to set us free. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. And I think I might have um, deleted it from the, the Scripture list, so I'm sorry if I did. Isaiah 53. Now, here's what's special about Isaiah 53. Isaiah wrote 700 years prior to Christ, 650 or so. 700 years prior to Christ, Isaiah writes, and he prophesies. Now, the earliest copy we have of Isaiah dates back to about 200 years. It's called the Great Scroll of Isaiah. 200 years prior to Jesus. And this is what it says. Who has believed what, is, uh, what he has heard from us, and to whom has the Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the first part of this passage you're saying, man, this guy's got problems. This guy here in Isaiah, he, he's despised, he's rejected. This is not a guy I want to be. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came for that cross. There's no question about it. And there's no turning him aside on that road to Jerusalem. He is going to that cross. And he is going there for you, for me, for blind Bartimaeus. He is going to that cross. All you need to do is say, Lord, I recognize what you've done for me. I recognize that you've paid the price for me. I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to be your servant. I'm ready to do what you tell me to do. I'm ready to take my life out of my own hands and put it into yours. Are you ready to exercise faith tonight? That's the question. Let's pray, huh? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that your perfect plan of redemption has been carried out. Jesus, we praise you that nothing could deter you from that cross. You've set your face like flint towards the cross on our behalf. That by your punishment, we've been given peace with the Lord. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for any in this room, Lord, that has yet to surrender. Any household where husbands and wives are vying for authority, Lord God, that tonight they would repent. Tonight that they would turn from looking for authority but to looking to be a servant. Lord, any person in this room that's been vying for the authority of their life, Lord, tonight they would surrender to you and give you authority. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we ask for you to bless the rest of our worship tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, uh, we've been talking a lot about becoming a servant, and um, it would be no good unless you actually thought tonight as you leave from here, 
and you, you take it into the, the, your prayer closet and you pray about this. But how are you actually going to do this? How are you actually going to apply it? Where, where does it actually meet reality, this Bible study, this sermon tonight? Well, here, here's a challenge for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Maybe putting aside some of your, your, your uh, uh, desires or whatever to embrace your wife or to lift her up. Wives, submit to your husbands. Humble yourselves before them. You know, those unspoken uh, desires that you're like, well, he should just know to do that. He should just know to bring me flowers. Just humble yourselves. Love your husband. Wives love your, uh, husbands love your wives. Children, those of you that are youth or children, honor your mother and father. Do this before the Lord. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. You know, we've got a lot to pray for and a lot of people to pray for. Serve each other that way. There's all sorts of ways, and maybe, maybe even this way. This is the biggest challenge. I think it's easy for Christians for us to do things. Very hard to take the gospel into our workplaces, to actually verbally share it. But the fact is, if there's no one there to speak it, how will they know? So think about serving your Lord that way. Looking for opportunities to share the gospel with coworkers. So I want to challenge you this week. When you leave here, ask the Lord, how can I serve? Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.